True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The old adage says that lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place, except when it does. The disappearance of a 16-year-old girl had her community up in arms. No one could imagine such a terrible thing happening in a close-knit northwest town. But then it happened again, and not just in the same town, but to the same family. Only this time the mystery was deeper and more horrific than anyone could ever imagine. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. And you're listening to episode 44, The Mystery of the Piercy Sisters. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank the show's new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Guy Cunliffe, Alex, Sune van Veik, Fallon, and Kolia Borshoff for their support on Patreon, as well as to Ilka Zenskarali for her donation through PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon and get an additional Patreon-exclusive episode every month, or make a once-off donation through PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to help keep the show growing and improving. The case I'm covering today was brought to my attention by private investigator Leon Rousseau. He recently had several of the missing person cases he's working on covered by the television show for Miss. And I'm slowly working my way through all of these cases because they all deserve as much exposure as possible. In researching this episode, I used information from the television program as well as several media articles. I also spoke to Edna and Blanche's mom, Janine, and a few of Edna's friends and listened to a podcast she was interviewed on called Can I Help Find Your Missing Loved One by forensic artist Diana Trepkov. This case is not just a case of a missing young woman, although that would certainly be bad enough on its own. This case is actually two cases that are inextricably linked through blood ties of possibly more than one kind. In this episode, we'll be looking at two puzzles, and it seems that if one can be solved, the other one may be too. Let's get into episode 44, The Mystery of the Piercy Sisters. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Edna Elaine Piercy 
was born to Janine Wendell Lottering on the 13th of August 1985. Less than a year later, on the 11th of August 1986, her sister Blanche was born. The following year, they would be joined by a little brother, Alan. While having three babies in as many years could not have been easy, pictures of the family in these early years show happy, smiling children. These sisters were especially strongly bonded, being so close in age. Sadly, by the time the children were six, five and four, Janine's relationship with the children's father had broken down and they were divorced. According to Janine, the children's biological father broke all ties with the children and played no further role in their lives. Not long after, Janine met and married Johnny Lottering, who took on the role of father for the three children. For most of their childhood, the family lived in Kempton Park on the East Rand. In the late 80s, when Gert van Royen, the abductor and presumed murderer of six young girls, was active, Edna and Blanche attended Creft Primary School in Kempton Park. Two of the van Royen victims also attended Creft Primary School at the same time that the Piercy sisters were also there. This traumatic period left indelible marks on all that lived through it, and Janine and Johnny no longer allowed their children to go anywhere alone. As the girls grew up, their personalities and interests developed. Edna loved singing and modelling, and Janine remembers fondly how she and Blanche would dance around the house to their favourite songs. Edna was an accomplished singer, winning gold certificates in Eisteddfords at school. Her dream, though, was to become a primatologist and conservationist like Diane Fossey, whose work with gorillas was made famous in the 1988 movie Gorillas in the Mist. As a child, Edna had been in a car accident with her aunt, and she had a scar on the right side of her forehead. One of the things that Janine recalls fondly about her daughter is that she always dressed impeccably, and her short hair that she spiked up with gel earned her the nickname Porcupine from her family. Johnny Lottering says that he and Edna had a strong bond and that she would often share some of the challenges she was dealing with with him. He describes Blanche as the apple of his eye, though, saying that although he loved all three children equally, he and Blanche had a stronger bond. Janine describes Blanche as being a little quieter than her sister Edna. She enjoyed long-distance running and loved babies and young children. Janine is sure that Blanche would have run her own creche one day. Both Blanche and her sister enjoyed reading the Bible. In early 2001, the family moved from Kempton Park to Rustenburg, where Johnny had secured work in the mines. Janine was able to secure a transfer from her employer, the newsagent CNA, to the branch in Rustenburg as well, where she was branch manager. The children were enrolled in Grenzbach High School. The family moved into a house in East Street, Rustenburg, which was less than a kilometre from the children's school. On most mornings and afternoons, the three children would walk to school and back home as a group. 
Edna and Blanche appear to have settled well in their new home, and even though their schoolmates at Grenzwach would have only known them for a very short time, they clearly made an impression as people speak of the girls fondly on Facebook, even today, 19 years after they would have known them. One woman remembers Edna's appetite for pizza at a get-together they had at friend's house. They had at a friend's house. Both girls are described as such cool people, and in the comments you can feel the awe and respect that their friends had for them. For those listeners that follow the show on social media, you would have seen my notes about this episode being slightly delayed because I needed to speak to an important person in the case. That person was Janine Lottering, Blanche and Edna's mom. I chose not to record my conversation with Janine because I had not provided her with my questions in advance, and I knew that the nature of this case meant we were going to be discussing some very difficult topics, and I didn't think it fair to spring that on her and then record her responses. The difficult questions will become evident a little later in this episode, but I would like to point something out up front. This case is not the first time I've seen inaccuracies in reporting, but my conversation with Janine took this to a whole new level. Almost everything about this case that's been reported in the media is either incorrect or a twisted version of the truth. And while ordinarily that may not make a huge difference, in this case, it's made an enormous difference. In fact, it may have been the difference between it being solved and not. Finding this out made me all the more glad that I had chosen to wait to speak to Janine and then reinforce the fact that I will never rely solely on media reporting as my source of research. I'm not saying that every journalist out there is unethical and reports incorrectly, as I know that we have a huge number of phenomenal journalists in this country. But it does seem to me that there's a very thin line that gets crossed very frequently in the media, and it's a problem. More on that later, though. On Friday the 12th of October 2001, Edna excitedly prepared for a school camp she was going on that weekend. The camp was for all of the pupils involved in the choir and I Stedford, and Edna would be practicing for a solo performance that she'd be giving at a school concert toward the end of the year. Edna packed her bag for the weekend and said goodbye to her mother. She would be leaving directly after school, and so that morning was her last opportunity to see her mom before she returned home on Sunday. Janine would have no way of knowing that it would be the last time she would ever see her daughter. Edna had arranged to hand her school bag over to a friend that was not attending the camp after school so that she didn't have to lug it around the whole weekend. She called her mom from the camp over the weekend and told her that she'd cut her foot open at the pool area at the camp and could therefore not participate in any of the activities. Edna was in good spirits, though, and enjoying herself. Janine's work as a manager at CNA meant that she had to work long hours and had to work weekends as well, 
So on Sunday, the 14th of October, when Edna returned from camp around 4pm in the afternoon, she was still at work. Johnny was home though, and he recalls how Edna bounced around on her return, excitedly telling him about the weekend. Blanche and Alan were apparently not home that Sunday afternoon either. Johnny says that he reminded Edna that if she wanted to have clean school clothes for the next day, she would need to wash them. So she put a load of washing into the machine, hung it up, and then told Johnny that she was going to walk up to her friend's house and fetch her school bag. Ordinarily, Janine says the children wouldn't walk anywhere on their own, but the other children weren't home, and she says that that Johnny still feels guilty that he didn't offer to go with Edna that day. After her shift at CNA ended, Janine came home and fell asleep on the couch for a little while. She woke up around 7pm and realised that Edna was still not home. Janine says that they immediately knew something was wrong. Both Edna and Blanche would always make contact if they intended staying out late. As darkness enveloped Rustenburg and the hours crept by, Janine and Johnny drove to the police station to open a missing persons case for their daughter. She says that they were assisted by police. Edna was 16 years old at the time of her disappearance, and it's not uncommon for police to initially assume that a teenager may have run away. With Edna, though, this doesn't seem to have been a viable option. If she'd wanted to run away, why return home with her luggage from the camp? Why not just run away with everything when she got back? Her parents also found all of her possessions in her bedroom, jewellery that she wore every day, and other items that she wouldn't have left without. It was confirmed that Edna had never arrived at the home of the friend she was headed to. The day after Edna's disappearance, her parents had made flyers, and Janine says they walked from house to house, handing out flyers and asking if anyone had seen Edna. No one had. Janine went to Grenzwach High School and got her daughter's school bag from her friend. I can only imagine how deeply Edna's disappearance had affected Blanche. The sisters were very close, and it's likely that if Edna had been planning on running away, she would have told Blanche. No one in the family, though, seemed to have any idea where Edna had gone. Reports of sightings of Edna were called into police, but all were discounted. Although police focus on the family would be far more intense later on, Janine told me that she, Johnny and Alan, who would have only been 14 at the time, were all asked to take polygraph tests after Edna's disappearance. They heard nothing back from the police about whether they'd passed or failed, but I do tend to think that if they had not passed, they would definitely have heard back from the police. I asked Janine if she remembered any searches being held by the police after Edna's disappearance, and she couldn't recall any. The police shared very little information with them, she says, so she has no idea about the finer details of the investigation into Edna's disappearance. In January 2002, Janine received a text message from an unknown number. 
the person claimed to be Edna and said that she was living in Port Elizabeth. The text claimed that the girl had left because she was pregnant and that she was living with her boyfriend and his mother. To Janine's knowledge, Edna did not have a boyfriend at the time of her disappearance. Her friends confirmed this to me as well. Janine forwarded the message to Johnny and they contacted the police. An investigation into the origins of the cell phone message allegedly showed that it was not sent from Port Elizabeth, but rather from a phone located within Rustenburg. No more messages were received after that. Months passed with no developments, and the initially shocked town of Rustenburg started to slowly return to normal. For Janine and her family, though, there was no such normality. Everything had been turned on its head, and it was about to get much worse. Edna had been missing for almost nine months, when on Friday the 7th of June 2002, 15-year-old Blanche returned home from school and made a start on dinner. She prepared spaghetti bolognese for the family. Blanche had arranged to babysit two children of one of Janine's co-workers, and she did so at the lottering home. The co-worker later collected her children. Blanche was home alone that afternoon. Both Johnny and Janine were at work, and Alan was not home yet. Blanche was dating a young man that lived across the road from them, and he and his father reported seeing Blanche standing inside the gate, chatting to two young boys that afternoon. She was also seen by another neighbour, standing alone. Those sightings was the last time that Blanche Piercy was seen alive. Between 8 and 9pm, Janine returned home from work. She found the pot of food still warm on the stove. Blanche's house keys were sitting on a table inside, but Blanche was nowhere to be found. When Blanche did not return home, Janine and Johnny Lottering found themselves in a living nightmare. Both their daughters were now missing, without a trace. They carried out the same search for Blanche as they had for Edna nine months before, and it proved just as fruitless. And then, on the 14th of July 2002, just five weeks after Blanche had disappeared, a woman walking through a felt on the outskirts of Rustenburg made a horrific discovery. The woman had been looking for a place to relieve herself when she'd spotted a strange pile of rocks and sticks, and then she saw a human hand extending from under the rocks. The woman fled the scene and immediately reported her discovery to the police. They arrived and cordoned off the area, carefully picking away at the pile until the true horror of the scene became clear. Under the stones, the body of a young girl was found. She was naked from the waist down and her face had been beaten into an unidentifiable pulp. The victim would later be identified as 15-year-old Blanche Piercy. Janine would describe the injuries to her daughter's face, 
by saying that's where the girl's face once was. There was now just a bloody hole. The injury would be determined to have been caused by blunt force trauma. Blanche's face had essentially been beaten until it no longer existed. According to Janine, she was told that the post-mortem determined that Blanche had only been dead since the 26th of June. Considering she went missing on the 7th of June, this means that she was held somewhere for 19 days, alive. The rate of decomposition of the body also indicated that she had not been exposed to the elements for 11 days either, so it was highly likely that her body had been stored somewhere in the interim, and she'd only very recently been placed under the tree. It should be taken into account that covering the body would slow down the rate of decomposition slightly, and it would have been pretty cold in Rustenburg in June and July. These are winter months in South Africa, and in Rustenburg the minimum temperature would be about 3 degrees Celsius on average, but it maxes out at about 20 degrees Celsius, which although most South Africans would consider pretty chilly, and indeed, Rustenburg is used to 30 degree averages in summer, it's not cold enough to thoroughly slow down or stall the decomposition process. The place where Blanche was found was only 500 metres from a local restaurant and pub, and it's very likely that she would have been found sooner if she had been there all the time. Some sources say that the post-mortem indicated that Blanche had been strangled, but Janine says that she was never told that, and she has no idea where that information comes from. If that was the cause of death, then it's highly likely that the facial injuries were caused post-mortem. If Blanche had incurred those injuries prior to her death, they very likely would have been fatal. But considering the strangulation cause of death was not shared with her mother, it's very difficult to say whether this is accurate or not. The absence of clothing on the lower half of her body indicates, of course, that she was sexually assaulted, and this was confirmed in the post-mortem, according to Janine. At one point, Janine mentioned that the police had stated that Blanche had been raped and by at least three assailants. Janine confirmed that the police told her that they had found the DNA of at least three contributing males inside Blanche's body. The discovery of Blanche's body set the investigation in a totally different direction. No longer was this a case of two sisters that may have run away together, one joining the other after nine months. Now it was very clear that there had been foul play involved in Blanche's disappearance, and it had to be considered that the same could be possible for Edna. In any murder investigation, it's vital to start close to the victim and work your way out. That is how every single case of this nature is handled, because the sad reality is that if you're murdered, it's far more likely to be by someone you know than a stranger. A 2014 study published in the New York Times showed that only 11% of all murders committed in the US were by perpetrators that had no link to the victim. 
This number is very likely similar in South Africa, and that percentage increases even more the younger the victim is, because the opportunity for them to come into one-on-one contact with strangers is also less. It is for this very reason that after Blanche's body was discovered, forensic investigators descended upon Janine and Johnny's home. A News 24 article published around the time described the house and property being forensically searched. All of Johnny's clothes were taken to be forensically analysed, and Johnny was interrogated by police, according to Janine, on several occasions. The police, she says, insisted that Johnny had something to do with Blanche's murder, and that he knew where Edna was as well. They also took DNA samples from Johnny and Janine, presumably to compare to DNA from the crime scene. And this is where the difficult questions in my conversation with Janine came in, in part. Janine's devastation around these accusations is clear and understandable, but I can also see the matter from the police's side. It is a constant refrain heard in cases of this nature that parents are horrified to be considered suspects, but the police would not be doing their job if they didn't look at the parents. In my conversation with Janine, she acknowledged that she knew and understood this method of investigation to be necessary. In many cases, the parents will soon be discounted as suspects, and the police will move on to the next radius of the circle around the victim, extended family, friends, neighbours, and even school teachers. Although there's very little information available about the investigative side of the case, it does seem that police never moved away from this point of investigation. Or if they did, they did not publicly announce that Johnny was no longer a suspect. There are a few things that could have discounted Johnny as a suspect. The first would be an alibi. Unfortunately, he did not have an alibi for the day that Edna disappeared. He was home alone with her by his own account. On the day that Blanche disappeared, though, he was at work. The second thing that could have discounted him, although certainly not foolproof, would be a lack of physical evidence found at their home, in his car or on his clothing. This was only looked at five weeks after Blanche's disappearance, though, so it is possible such evidence could have been removed. The third thing that could have discounted him was the fact that Blanche appeared to have been kept somewhere for 19 days alive and then her body stored for at least 10 to 12 days in conditions that would not hasten decomposition. If the police could not find proof that Johnny would have access to such facilities, then that could have played in his favour too. Janine also says that Johnny was either home with her or at work during the time that Blanche was missing. The biggest piece of evidence that could have discounted Johnny as a suspect is the DNA. According to what police said to Janine, they had DNA from three contributors inside Blanche's body, not on her body, where they could have been placed by anyone, but inside. In other words, semen from a sexual assault. 
police took Johnny, Janine and Alan's DNA. Surely if any one of their DNA matched those three contributors, an arrest would have been made? It is possible that the results were inconclusive, though, due to degrading of the samples. There may be another reason that police looked at Johnny, though. A News 24 article alleges that three months after Edna disappeared, Blanche told one friend that she'd been the victim of sexual assault since she was in primary school. It's alleged that she said that Edna had been a victim too. The perpetrator of the alleged abuse is not named in the article, but suspicion has fallen on Johnny Lottering. In the famous program, while the narrator is talking, the background of the screen is filled with newspaper clippings. I paused on these clippings to see what I could read, and in one that appeared to have come from a report newspaper article, Janine was quoted as saying that she had also suspected Johnny for a while and that he may have molested the girls, but she doesn't think he would have killed them. And this was the other part of the difficult questions I had to ask Janine during my call with her, because I believe it makes a huge difference to the solvability of both these cases. I was still wondering how I was going to raise these claims with Janine when she raised them herself, and she emphatically denies every allegation of abuse within her household. She told me that she has no idea where these rumours have come from, but that her daughters were most definitely not being sexually assaulted in her home, and that if they had been, she would most certainly have taken steps to end the abuse. She compares her own childhood, which was sadly abusive, to her girls, and says that both Blanche and Edna went out of their way to spend time around Johnny. They actively sought him out. In her own experience, she avoided her abuser at all costs. Janine denies making the statement that was attributed to her in the newspaper article, and I do find it interesting that the article is no longer available online. After years of experiences like this with journalists, Janine says that she started recording herself every time she gave a statement so that she could have proof of what she'd said. The biggest problem, for me at least, about these abuse allegations is not whether they are true or not. It is the effect that they've had on this investigation. On almost every forum on social media where I've seen this allegation mentioned, the narrative behind the discussion inevitably goes one way, to assuming the guilt of the parents. And there is a huge problem with that. Picture someone who may have lived in Rustenburg at the time of these two horrific events taking place. Imagine that someone had suspicions that a person they knew could have been involved, or that they had seen something on the days that either Edna or Blanche went missing. Now imagine that person reading about these allegations and seeing them being reinforced by the public on social media and by journalists in articles. There's a very good chance 
that that person would then completely push what they know to the back of their minds, discount it altogether, and forget it, because in their minds, it can't be true or helpful, because here everyone's saying that the parents did it. And therein lies the problem. Rustenburg is a relatively small town, and when bad things happen in small towns, it inevitably starts the rumour mill, and we all know rumours have a habit of taking on the broken telephone effect. And it's not impossible that the allegations of abuse started as a schoolgirl's conversation about Blanche's murder, in which someone embellished a little to make it look like they knew something they didn't. Or it might not be. We don't know for sure, because police don't seem to have investigated these allegations or spoken to anyone who claimed to have knowledge of them. The other piece of information that ends up setting this case in a completely different direction is the injuries to Blanche's face. As recently as June 2020, I have seen articles by high-profile magazines that claim Blanche's face was cut off. Again, this piece of information sends the conversation off on a tangent, with people starting to talk about occult murders and serial killers. Blanche's face was not cut off. Her injuries were caused by blunt force trauma. What that indicates is a whole lot of rage. I don't think that was done to obscure her identity, although it is possible. Let me be very clear. I am not here to be a champion for Johnny Lottering. I am here to look at the evidence and be a voice for Edna and Blanche. And I believe anyone that loved those girls will be satisfied with that. I started off my conversation with Janine by telling her that I hoped to use this podcast to stop the intense focus in one direction and to instead open people's minds to other possibilities. And if we look at actual evidence and not rumours, allegations and assumptions, it seems pretty clear to me that this investigation suffered from some tunnel vision. Whether or not that tunnel vision is deserved is another question. But it hasn't helped the case up until this point, 20 years later, so maybe it's time to widen our view. So what could have happened to Edna and Blanche? And are their cases even connected? The latter is something that could also steer thoughts about these cases in the wrong direction. Because what if lightning really did strike twice in the same place? There are two options as to what happened to Edna. She either disappeared from her home or she disappeared on the way to her friend's house. There is no real evidence that she disappeared from her house. Restraining and demobilising a strong 16-year-old girl would likely have left some evidence behind, but to our knowledge, nothing was found. We know that she did need to collect her school bag, so the fact that she would have set out to do that makes complete sense. On the walk between her house and the friend's house, she could have been taken by someone or she could have gone with someone willingly and things went wrong. In Edna's case, 
We do not know whether she's alive or dead. Janine says that she wants to believe she's alive. She wonders whether the sex trade in Rustenburg, which at the time was quite active, especially around the mines, could have anything to do with both girls' disappearances. She considers that perhaps they could have been taken to work as sex workers, and perhaps Edna complied out of fear, and Blanche did not, which is why she was killed. I find it difficult to believe that any single killer or trafficker would be dumb enough to take two girls from the same family. But there was almost a year's gap between the two disappearances. And let's face it, whoever did it has gotten away with it for this long. So maybe they weren't that dumb after all. Mention has been made that Edna worked part-time as a waitress at a wedding venue. There's also been mention that there was a male individual working at that venue that harassed Edna. Apparently, this much older man continually asked for Edna's number, and her refusal only spurred him to continue asking. Sadly, we don't know if that lead was ever followed up on in the investigation. The text message received by Janine in January seems to be a red herring in my opinion. There are three options. Firstly, it could have been sent by the person that took Edna to set police off the trail. Secondly, it could well have been sent by Edna herself. But that doesn't seem to fit with what we know of her. Lastly, it could have been sent by a person totally unrelated to the case, as a way of scamming the parents. This happens regularly in missing person cases. Scammers will approach the family, pretend to have information, and then demand money in return for more information. There was no such demand in this case, but they may well have been working up to it. Police, of course, seem to believe that Johnny Lottering sent the text message, but he was apparently 2,000 metres underground when the text message was sent. In case you're wondering... There's no cell service down there. I tried to see if there were any other disappearances or murders of this nature in Rustenburg during that period, and I couldn't find any information confirming that. Some people that I spoke to that still live in Rustenburg said they couldn't remember any other disappearances or murders of young girls in the area for years before or after these two incidents. With Blanche, the mystery is even deeper, but the evidence seems to provide more directions to look in. Blanche was home alone on the day of her disappearance. Both Johnny and Janine have alibis for that time period. She could have been taken by force, but there is no evidence to point to that. What seems more likely is that someone lured her into their car or home. She was kept alive for 19 days. Now we might think that this would have been in a remote place where no one could hear her, but there have been many cases of child abductions where the child is kept alive in homes as close as next door to where the victim lived. If the perpetrator was unemployed, it wouldn't be difficult to keep her captive for that amount of time. 
the fact that police seem to have found three contributing DNA samples inside Blanche certainly adds credence to the human trafficking theory. It also would make it far easier for Blanche to have been kept and stored after death if there was more than one person involved. In order to slow down decomposition to the extent that it was in Blanche's case, in my mind at least, one would need some sort of refrigeration facility, and this would seem like a good lead, because one could search for such facilities in the area. But the truth is that she could have been kept in something as simple as a chest freezer. Blanche was a small girl. If she was curled up, she could easily fit into a chest freezer, and that expands the possibilities all over again. Every time I asked Janine about something related to the investigation, leads that were looked into or people that were interviewed, she had to tell me that she had no idea, and this is because she really doesn't. Ordinarily, after the parents of a murdered child are discounted as suspects, they'll then be treated again as a normal grieving family by police, and they'll be provided with whatever information the police can offer. But that never happened. From the moment the lotterings were looked at as suspects, they were refused any and all information about the investigation. In my mind, at least, there is enough physical and circumstantial evidence in Blanche's case that they had to have been able to include or exclude Johnny. I do wonder whether they actually have excluded him a long time ago and just never bothered to say so. The most concerning thing is that in the past, when Janine has attempted to find out what's happening in the investigation, she's been told that the police cannot locate the dockets. Now, they could have just been telling her that because they didn't want to share information with her, or they could have really lost them. It does seem that the PI, Leon Rousseau, has managed to make some headway in that regard, at least. My concern is, where are the three DNA profiles that were found inside Blanche? Do they still exist? Have they also been lost? Because in my mind, that is the key to solving this case, and possibly Edna's as well. That DNA did not get inside Blanche willingly, and those three men either also abducted and murdered her, or they know who did. Almost 20 years ago, when this case happened, we had limited DNA capabilities. Today, though, we could be much more precise. If they'd compared Johnny's DNA to the three contributors and found a match, it's safe to say police would have arrested him in 2002. That would have been unequivocal evidence that he was involved. But they didn't arrest him. So I think it's pretty safe to say that Johnny was not one of those contributors. Janine says that police searched their house from top to bottom. They even cut open their furniture to ensure nothing was hidden inside. They took phones, tapes, books, clothing, and many other things. If there was a connection to be found, I tend to think they would have found it. While I was researching this case, 
I attempted to make contact with school friends of Blanche and Edna, as well as an ex-SAPS member that had worked on the case. One friend of Edna's responded to me, and she asked to remain anonymous. She'd met Edna quite by chance when the family still lived in Kempton Park. In conversation, Edna had mentioned that her family was moving to Rustenburg, and this anonymous source, let's call her Sally, said that she lived in Rustenburg and went to Grenzbach High School. When Edna moved to Rustenburg and attended the same school, her and Sally became firm friends. Sally describes Edna as being one of the coolest girls she had ever met. She recalls a hockey game that Edna was involved in and how she'd been completely devastated when she'd accidentally hit another player in the face and knocked two of her teeth out. This, she said, was a perfect example of the kind and sweet girl that Edna was. Sally says that Edna's disappearance has changed her life. It haunts her and her friends to this day. She says that it has changed the way she lives her life and how she's raised her own children. Sally is one of the people that was told of the abuse allegations. She was told by the person Blanche allegedly spoke to after Edna went missing and before Blanche went missing. She, however, believes that there is a good possibility that the same perpetrator was not responsible for both Edna's disappearance and Blanche's death. It is difficult in this case to separate fact from fiction, because even the statements that may be fiction have their roots somewhere. There has been so much incorrect reporting around this case, which has been proven to be incorrect, that 20 years later, it's hard to say what was really said and what really happened, or what is perhaps a mishmash of memory and inaccurate reporting. Sally, like everyone else, just wants both of these cases solved. Despite being a close friend of Edna's, Sally was never spoken to by police. Neither were any of her other friends. So that begs the question, if police were investigating this young girl's disappearance, why would they not talk to her friends? After her sister was murdered, why would they still not talk to her friends? Sally then referred me to another of Edna's friends, who also wished to remain anonymous. This friend we'll call Amanda. Edna was at Amanda's house shortly before she disappeared. She too is convinced that there was some form of abuse going on in the Lottering household because of various things that she'd heard and witnessed. She also was never spoken to by police. Amanda echoes Sally's sentiments about how Edna's disappearance and Blanche's murder have affected her. She says that people don't understand how deep and for how long a trauma like this stays with you, especially when you have no real answers. And then, something that Amanda tells me puts a totally different spin on the story, and she is 100% convinced that she's correct. Amanda does not believe that Edna disappeared on the day that everyone thinks she did. 
I'm not going to go too deep into that theory, because I think that it first needs to be shared with the investigator and run down. It should not be difficult to figure out when the last time was that Edna was really seen, or at least it wouldn't have been difficult 20 years ago. Today, maybe a little more difficult. I must say that this has been one of the most confusing cases that I've ever covered. I've spoken to several different people, all with very specific views, and each one entirely convinced that their version is correct, and they probably are. The truth very likely doesn't sit in one single story. It sits in a merging of those stories, in identifying the threads of reality and truth in each one, and then stitching them together with the physical evidence to form a picture of what really happened. As different as all these versions are, there's one thing they have in common. Every single person just wants to know what happened. My concern is that the narrative, 20 years ago, of the allegedly abusive stepfather killing his stepdaughters to silence them, became far too convenient. It became the easy explanation for everyone, including the police. The police, though, don't even seem to have known about the abuse allegations, if they didn't speak to the one person that Blanche allegedly told. So what were they working off? The mystery of Edna and Blanche Piercy endures almost 20 years after their disappearance, although many likely believed that they knew who was responsible, I think it's safe to say that can no longer be assumed to be true. In considering this case, I'm not asking you to believe that Johnny is innocent of everything he's been accused of. Honestly, I don't even think that's a priority to Janine and Johnny anymore. What I am asking you to do is to accept that what you may have been told by the rumour mill and the mass media is very likely not accurate, at least not in its entirety. In fact, on many accounts, it's been proven to be blatantly false. So what we need to do now is open our minds, and instead of allowing our assumptions to guide us, Rather, for the sake of Edna and Blanche, allow ourselves to consider every option. Allow yourselves to consider, if you lived in Rustenburg all those years ago, that maybe, just maybe, that niggling feeling you had at the time of Edna's disappearance or Blanche's murder was right. Allow yourself the space to consider that maybe the sighting you had or conversation you remember is actually relevant. Do not allow yourself to assume that you know what happened in this case and have that cause you not to come forward, because there is one small piece of information that is going to solve, I believe, both of these cases, and you may just have it. If you're interacting on social media around this case, whether it's on my groups or someone else's, I ask you to think critically 
about what you put out there and ask yourself if your opinions are really based on fact. Consider that every time someone pushes the narrative on this case in one unproven direction, it may just allow the real perpetrator or perpetrators of these crimes to get further and further away. The brutal murder of a young girl and the mysterious disappearance of her sister is bound to bring up emotions. We want the person that did this to be caught, but we cannot allow those strong emotions to detract from true justice. It is time that these cases were solved, and in my mind at least, if everyone has been looking in one direction for 20 years and not found the answers, then maybe the answers aren't in that direction. Maybe the answer is in a broader viewpoint. And every time we push this assumed narrative, we get further and further from the truth. And just maybe, the person that did this is sitting in his home, watching everyone take the bait, and smiling because he got away with murder. In covering this case, my only motive is to get people talking about Edna and Blanche again, but this time with a broader viewpoint. I am not here to convict or acquit anyone in the jury of public opinion. Twenty years ago, Edna and Blanche Piercy had their voices snatched away from them. Edna was an outgoing and fun girl who loved music and wanted to be a conservationist. She was a gentle girl who, despite only having been in town for six months before her disappearance, managed to impact people's lives so deeply that even now, two decades later, her friends still think about her almost every day. Blanche Piercy had her whole life ahead of her. She was a sweet, quiet girl who enjoyed long-distance running and adored babies. Blanche's life was ripped away from her in the most horrific way. And although we know where she is, her story is still not complete. Even though Edna and Blanche are no longer physically here, they really are in a way. They are here every time one of their friends or family members has a fond memory of them. They are here every time someone sheds a tear because all they want is justice. And they are here when the person or people that did this to them closes their eyes at night. Because although two decades has passed, an interest in this case has ebbed and flowed. We haven't forgotten. And we know that you haven't either. So we will continue to say Edna and Blanche's names and we will continue to tell their stories without allowing anything to block our view. And even though you think you got away with murder, I wouldn't relax too much if I were you, because the truth might just be right around the corner. Thank you for listening to episode 44, The Mystery of the Piercy Sisters. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with the Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Bye.